we don't plan our songs <clears throat> in accordance with our we don't plan our songs with our sermon. I prepare what I've got to share, whoever's preaching, and then whoever's leading worship prepares their songs based on what the Lord has laid on their heart. And um, that last song, you couldn't have got a better fit for what we're looking at this morning. But before we get into that, it is 60, can anybody tell me what 64 days from today is? Christmas. Thank you, Jesus. We have such a Christmas-aware body, and I love that because I love Christmas. So 64 days until Christmas, which means Christmas at the Rock is coming up. I don't know what the date is. I should have researched that before I started this announcement. But we have Christmas at the Rock. When is it? It's in December. So second Sunday of December is Christmas at the Rock. I thought I heard someone shouting a date out, but I didn't. So second Sunday after church today, the children that are in the children's classes are going to gather over here by the stage to practice their songs. I was supposed to make that announcement. But they're all gone. But that's fine. You guys all know where they're supposed to be. <clears throat> Thank you, Martin, for sharing what the Lord laid on your heart last week. We got a, a good bunch of us all here that help bear the burden, carry the weight, uh, participate in administering the word, and I'm grateful for all of you, so thank you. Okay, brief review. We're gonna, this is another, there's a lot on my heart this morning. I'll move this so I don't walk into it. There's a couple things. Before we start, I was, we were singing, and I was thinking about, you know, we're singing, and the worship was nice and loud this morning. Everybody got to sing. Some of you may be like, oh, it was too loud. It might have been a little too loud sometimes, but it was nice and loud, and it was good to sing, and I thought, you know, you can hear this. If you walk around the building, you'll hear the songs, and that's good. I like to, have, I like to sing. I like to play music. You know, I love, I love to lead worship, but it hit me this morning that there is places in the world where it is illegal to do what we're doing. Um, there's actually more places where this kind of thing is illegal than there is that it is legal. We take that for granted. You know, many of us, we grew up here. This is all we've ever known. We can't imagine um, experiencing an like a truly underground situation. Um, I got to participate when I was in high school. There was a Christian organization that did a, basically a simulation of the underground church for us. It was a weekend getaway, and we met in a, it was on Kelly's Island, and we met in an abandoned rock quarry, in the bottom of the rock quarry, and everything was hidden, and they had stayed, this was back when it was, it was different I say back like I'm old, but it was different time. Uh, they had guards, like armed guards that were kind of positioned along the way, and it was obviously they weren't actually armed, but they appeared to be armed. And they gave you this feeling like, are we doing something wildly illegal is what it felt like. And that was the idea was to present that. And this morning I was just thinking about all of those places in the world. We have the opportunity to believe here in the name of Lord Jesus Christ. We can choose to wear a shirt about it. We can we can proclaim it, we can post about it, we can... Now, it's, there's more pressure today than there ever has been in this country about our faith, but I, what got me this morning is we're here, we've got coffee, we've got a potluck uh, after church, we got the opportunity to sing songs, we can freely text, like when anybody ever texted somebody a verse and thought, like, I probably should, like, encode this somehow, I've never had that. I just send a verse. It's like I put the reference with it. I was like, I don't know. I don't because I don't fear. I have no fear that I'm going to get a knock on the door in the middle of the night, and that'll be the last my family ever sees from me because I sent First Corinthians 13 to somebody. And I thought this morning when I, we were worshiping, I thought about what. And, and this is not a. Don't feel pressure in this. This is just perspective. This is just a question, everybody. So don't. This isn't what the message is about, but I was, it ties into what we're talking about a little bit today with looking at Esther. What percentage of us would be willing to walk through that door if there was two people standing on the outside of it with automatic weapons to protect us in the event of a raid? We had to have the lights off. We had it curtained off on this side. We sang in a whispered tone, and we shared Scripture and Revelation to each other knowing that if we were captured, it would be the end of our life. 
Would we still gather? Or would it be very easy to say, like, it's not, I'm not, like, I'll believe in Jesus at home, but I'm not going to risk gathering with other believers. It, it, what if it would cost, like, what if we were caught? And it just, I, I don't know exactly why I thought of that this morning, but I was sitting there and thinking, boy, it's pretty comfortable. And I love to be, I love our comfortable facility and the fact that we are, I love our freedom. I'm so thankful for our freedom that we have in this country. But I think about that, does that make it more casual? It's like, ah, it's like, yeah, you know, we'll go to church. Like, maybe we won't go to church next week. Maybe we will. It's not like, I don't know. There's no risk. What did we risk in coming here this morning? And, and I think about this because the gospel, as revealed in Scripture and as walked out by the early church, it's bigger than persecution. It's bigger than losing your life. Like, if the guy, you know, Paul said, he's like, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then we, by above all, are most foolish. But he was. And so there's no level of persecution. If they were off with our heads, we still win. We still gather together. We still celebrate the cross in this new covenant. The new covenant's bigger than all of that. And don't anyone take that as could be like dark and, and down, and I don't mean it that. I just think about like, this gospel is bigger than even that. I mean, so much bigger. It's not like, well, I don't know. It's kind of a wash. It's not a wash at all. What we're dealing with is eternal. Any level of persecution in this life is temporal, which just means it ends. At some point, it ends. It expires. Eternal life with Jesus, by definition, doesn't ever expire. Eternal life with Jesus is always greater than anything in this life. Anything. Anything. And I think tying it, we're, we're going to pick back up in the story of Esther this morning. And there, there came a point, and we looked at this last two weeks ago when we met, or when I was, preached a couple weeks ago, we looked at, there came, she got eventually to the point where she said, if I perish, I perish, which is reminiscent of a verse in Revelation talks about they did not love their lives until the death. They weren't in love with their lives. It talks about they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. It's found in Revelation chapter, it's either 12, 11 or 11, 12. And it's reminiscent of that, that thought. It's like, if I perish, I perish. She understood there was greater things going on than whether or not she perished. Do we understand that today, that our, the gospel that we've been entrusted with is greater than persecution? It's greater than being ridiculed. It's greater than being laughed at. It's greater than losing relationships or friends with people. Or whatever. I'm not looking to lose friends over this, but do we understand that the gospel is greater than social rejection? Like the gospel is greater than, if we're the only ones that believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's still greater than being rejected. That was just a thought. I just want to, I, I thought about that and I, I think what was on my heart is there's a, there is an intensity that is required to do an underground gathering of believers. It's not for the faint of heart. Like, I mean, we could do a, a version of it and we could sort of feel what it was like, but I'm talking if it was legitimate, they find out who you are, you're done. There's an intensity that is required for that, to live that way, to live knowing I'm going to follow Jesus. If this is my last day because of it, I'm still going to follow Jesus. No matter what, I'm going to follow Jesus. And I just want to encourage us to walk with that, to, to meditate on the new covenant so much so, it's like, I mean, to live as Christ and to die as gain, there's no, it's, it's so much bigger than my earthly existence. Brief review. This is going to be like the, the fastest review ever because the clock and I are not getting along. The story of Esther, everybody remember, the story of Esther is set during the time secular history reminds us of the Battle of 300. King Xerxes I is the king Ahasuerus that is referred to in the book of Esther. That's the king that she was the queen to. Uh, he was the son of Cyrus the Great. Um, because of her unwillingness to be paraded around like a trophy, uh, king Xerxes removes Queen Vashti from the throne, begins a tremendously carnal process for appointing a new queen. Through this process, this is like super fast, everybody, so just hang on. Most of you may remember this, but I want to go over it because it's been a couple weeks. We're just going to go over it quickly. 
Uh, through this process, Esther is selected as a queen. She was an orphan of Jewish parents living in exile in Shushan, or the secular city of Susa, which was the capital of the Persian Empire, is located in southwestern Iran, is where that city is located. Not super far from Baghdad, a little ways, little ways east of Baghdad, if you look it up on a map. Just north of the Persian Gulf is where you find it. Uh, Esther's functioning dad was her cousin Mordecai, he cared for her throughout the whole story as a father figure. Now, there's a few things that you say, well, I don't know if a dad would have done exactly that, but he functioned in that role, but was actually her cousin. After Esther was taken, and by taken, I mean taken, it wasn't like she didn't throw her name in the hat like, ooh, I think I'm pretty, I'd like to be the queen. She was taken because she was beautiful, and she was forced to be in this queen situation. After Esther was taken to live in the king's harem, Mordecai discovered a plot against the king's life. Remember this? He's pacing at the gate of the, uh, of the, is it the city or is it the, 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 anyways, he's pacing at the gate. We got to keep my, I got to keep my review going. Uh, and he discovers, he overhears a couple of guards talking about the plot against the king's life. So he participates in, in thwarting that. And we know, and remember, we talked about this, and then we just left it. And it was like this, what, what, what happens? He, he helps thwart the plot against the king's life, and it's written down in the chronicles of the day. It's just like written down, sort of like a public record. He also upsets the king's uh, henchman, Haman, who he was like his number two, by refusing to bow before him at the gate of the palace. This plays massively into this story. After this, Haman drafts a law that declares a day in the future to basically become open season on the Israelite people throughout the whole kingdom of Persia. Now, there's a detail that we didn't look at before um, that is worth noting. So, there's always been a war against God's chosen people. We, we've witnessed this in real time in the last several weeks, uh, what's gone on in Israel, and we're not going to talk a tremendous about that a bunch about that today, but we see it. It's still going on. There are spiritual forces at work that are against God's chosen people, and they have always been. What is unique about the story of Esther, so the Persian Empire at the time of King Xerxes I, during Esther's time as queen, this is amazing. It had an approximate, approximately 44% of the world's population in one empire. Almost half. Some speculate it was over 50% of all the people in the world dwelled in the Persian Empire. It was, by population percentages, the largest empire the world has ever seen. Now, that doesn't mean it was the most people that have ever lived in it, but the percent, you understand what I mean. The greatest percentage of the world population to be governed by one person was at this point, like today, all the way today, is the greatest. Interestingly enough, basically all of the Jews in the world lived in the Persian Empire. Well over 90% of the Jews at the time they believed. Now, you say, what sort of data do we have on this? It's pretty rough, but there's, we have reason to believe that most of the Jewish population of the entire world would have lived in the Persian Empire at the time. So, what does this mean for the story of the gospel? It means... That of all points in time in human history, the enemy had one of the best chances at extinguishing that flame of hope that he ever had at this time. Because the, there's a plot coming, and we looked at it briefly. There's a plot that Haman gets upset because he is dishonored by Mordecai. And so he comes up with this plot, and if you've been doing your homework reading in the book of Esther, you see there was a plot to destroy all the Jews a day of rage or open season, just exterminate the Jewish population. Which is important for us as believers today because Jesus came through the Jewish lineage. It was the chosen people for the purpose, and I'm not going to go over all of it, but we understand the point of the chosen people was to bring a Messiah to save all people. This plot's pretty dark. Haman drafts that law, declares a day in the future to become, and we're not going to look at the whole play out of that. We're, we got a few things. This, we're going to be in Esther for a little bit. It was his attempt at exterminating all the Jewish people, the entire kingdom of Persia. 
When Mordecai learns of this law, he grieves in sackcloth and ashes. He has the famous communication with Esther, the most famous verse in all of Esther. Who knows, but that you came to this, you're put in this position for such a time as this. This is the only verse that most people know from the book of Esther. For such a time as this. We always, and we, told, we looked at this several weeks ago, we looked at, we always assume that this conversation happened between Mordecai and Esther. And we learned from studying it, there was a very important individual who gets no fame or credit, his name Hetach, who was the go-between. He carried messages. He would go talk to Esther and he would tell him what Mordecai said. Then he would go to Mordecai and tell him what Esther said. Then he would go back to Esther. And we know, we looked at this in depth the one week, it's really important. He could have dropped the ball and foiled the whole thing. If he had chosen to be dishonest, if he had chosen to consider his own needs as greater than the needs of honest communication, he revealed or he relayed the message to Esther that challenged her. It's like, who knows if you are here for such a time as this? We looked at how in that moment when Mordecai gave that message to Esther, he didn't know how it was going to pan out, which is so important. We read it in retrospect. We have the the gift of reading it in retrospect. But unfortunately, with that gift, we lose the perspective that is built into the story when he says, who knows? I don't know. You might be in place for such a time as this. That's a big deal because we're looking at our lives forward. We don't have retrospect on, to, on next week, do we? We will next Sunday, but we don't have it today. We don't know what, how next week's gonna pan out. We don't know what's gonna work out. We don't know if we make a stand for truth how it's going to pan out. So we can say, just like Mordecai, who knows if we're here for such a time as this, but let's step, let's walk, let's stand tall for truth. We looked, the last time we met and talked about Esther, we looked at choosing to engage our culture regardless of how hopeless it may seem. This is powerful for us as a church today. There's so much just a sleepism going on in the church. It's like, well, you know what difference? It's like the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Like, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? We're going to stand for truth. The world may be on fire, but remember we talked, like, we're holding the fire hose in the burning building, and so many Christians are like, man, this is bad. It's hot in here. This fire is, it's going to destroy the whole thing. And then we get the intercom from our command. It's like, hey, remember, turn the hose on. You've got the gospel. We bear the gospel. We've been carrying, I love, that, I love that picture, and it was from the Lord, it wasn't my idea, but like, it takes effort to drag the fire hose through a burning building. It takes effort for us to continue meeting. We continue to study the Bible. We continue to drag the gospel of truth through our world, and yet we're like hiding our light under a bushel, carefully walk. It's like, don't, and then we get together and we shine our lights together. And it's like, put the bushel basket back on and we're gonna go back. It's like, I don't want, because, what difference does it make? What good is it going to do? I mean, what good, what good is it going to do? Now, all through, all through this story, we know, because we're not naive, we're learning to be good stewards of the word of God, rightly dividing the word of truth. We're learning to see Jesus in all scripture, in John 1, we see John wrote that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later on in that chapter, he writes, the Word became flesh, the person of Jesus Christ, and dwelled among us, made his life for 33 years among us. Jesus is the Word, which means all Scripture, which was given by inspiration of God, has a representation, a type or a shadow, a picture of Jesus and the new covenant in it. We haven't exhausted this story of Esther looking at that. We're going to look at a little bit of it today. There's a bunch in this story that points us to Jesus. It's an overlay. There's, there are examples of the new covenant that are in this passage of Scripture. But we got to understand the storyline before we can start looking at that. And that's where I think it's important for us to study the stories of Scripture. To help understand, you know, there's people that, Christians I know that, that make the reference, and I appreciate it, that we don't, we don't just read the Bible to understand the Bible. We look through the Bible to understand our world today. Our world's a little bit of a mess. But even greater than that, we look at the Word of God to see Jesus. 
We look at the word of God to see the new covenant revealed in greater glory, in greater detail, all through the Old Testament and into the New Testament. So we left off last time we met at the end of Esther chapter 4. The end of Esther chapter 4, we see verse 13, Mordecai told them to answer Esther. This is Hatach. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. If you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Mordecai understood that the Jewish people, well, the Israelite nation was God's chosen people. And Mordecai understood enough biblical history to understand their relief would be provided. Why? Because Mordecai understood the covenant that God made with his people. And he said, I'm going to look after you. Mordecai's like, he's going to look after them. If we drop the ball, someone will pick it up. But who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for a time as this. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present at Shushan. Fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Now it happened on the third day. We might not make it past this today. But we got lots of weeks ahead to finish this book. Now it happened on the third day. Scripture... How many of you know that Scripture has details in it? And you know that if God is able to make Scripture last for thousands of years, he's pretty attentive to detail. And I love, and I'm not the master of it by any stretch of the imagination, but I love the study of numbers in the, book, in the Bible. Not the book of Numbers, I appreciate that book also, but the study of Numbers, looking at the numbers, numerical references throughout, not the ones we added, verse and chapter, that's fine, that makes it easier to find it, it's like a filing system, but I'm talking about the numbers that are recorded in the original text. I appreciate those numbers, and I, I appreciate looking for patterns, you know there's patterns all through scripture, there's patterns of three, there's patterns of seven, there's patterns of 40, there's a tremendous amount of patterns of all these different numbers through Scripture. When I read this, so I've been reading Esther like round the clock for a couple months now. And this first line of this just gets me. It happened on the third day. We read this like this is not an important part of the story in our American telling of the story. It's like we can make this kind of a princess story. You could make a Disney movie of this princess story, and it'd be like, okay. But there's some tremendous spiritual things in this. Now, it happened on the third day. The very first time the third day is referenced in all scriptures in Genesis 1, God created what? The tree of life was created on the third day. What? The tree of life was created on the third day. How many of you know what else happened on the third day? What's the most famous third day in all of scripture? And I love the way that my favorite rendition of the, of the third day in the New Testament when Jesus rose was on the road to Emmaus. They're like, now it's been, it's, today's the third, they're walking with Jesus, unbeknownst to them that it's Jesus, and they're talking, they're telling them about Jesus. It's like, it didn't work out. We thought he was the Messiah. Clearly he's not. And he's like, I am. Like, I am. But, so he teaches them from the Old Testament, and, but they, there's, a, there's a reference in there, I think it's Luke 24, 21, it says, besides all of this, today's the third day since all these things happened. In the Old Testament, they're talking about sacrifices, and the, this is a little graphic, so it's just a little graphic, just so you know, uh, trigger warning, it's a little graphic. Uh, it's after the third day that the remains of the sacrifice that were given, burnt offerings that were given, after three days, it begins to spoil. After three days. This is important. This is all, you say, what are we going? I love these. On, in Genesis 1, we see that God created the tree of life. He created all the trees and everything that had the, you know, that had the seed and the fruit and all this. That's all on the third day. 
But we don't realize if he created all the trees on the third day, that means he created the tree of life on the third day. Jesus was resurrected on the third day. In Genesis chapter 40, Joseph revealed to the butler and the baker that after three days, the meaning of their dreams would play out before their very eyes. One for life, one for death. What other tree was planted, became, was created on the third day? Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 40, we see Joseph revealed to the butler and baker, one for life and one for death. Each of these dreams would come to fruition after three days. Now, Genesis 42, verse 18, we see Joseph released his brothers from prison after three days. And the sentence he leads off with, if you do this, you will live. There is a tremendous value placed on these three days. The Lord is so attentive to detail. And I love that in Esther chapter five, verse one, I I read all kinds of things about Esther and about three days and the third day. And nobody, I've not found anybody that sees it this way. It happened on the third day after three days of fasting, she's ready to step forward for life. You know, she's making the case for life. You may be sitting there like, I'm not sure I get this. What was she, wait, what did she fast for? Remember in the story what she fasted because she was about to go to the king, possibly lose her life on behalf of her whole nation of people, on behalf of life itself. Because without those people, the Messiah doesn't come. She, after three days, she's ready to step forward and act on behalf of life. Jesus performed his very first miracle on the third. There's all kinds of third days. We're not going to park there. Jesus performed his very first miracle on the third day, and he performed his greatest on the third day, rising again. Scripture is full of little types and shadows and big types and shadows. Esther had the wisdom. Now, there are a lot of people that speculate on the book of Esther, and they add things to it, which does not bless me. And even though they're attempting to add things like, well, she fasted and prayed for three days. That seems like fairly church, right? I mean, we could do that at church, fasting and praying. How many of you today, 2023, if you hear fasting, you think fasting and praying? That's like you think, oh, we're going to fast and pray. We're going to fast. Jesus fasted and prayed. But the original text doesn't say that. So we're not going to add to it. So she fasted. That's what we have. We're not going to add to it and say, she was fasting and she was praying on her knees. Then we could say, well, maybe she was offering sacrifices. We don't have that. We have that she fasted. She didn't eat, she didn't drink for three days. Let's not make something, let's not twist scripture to say something that feels like at church. We see, though, even if she was not spiritually trained, Even if she wasn't, she saw the value in fasting. Anybody in here ever fasted? This is not a religious feeling. A few of you have, a few of you haven't, whatever. There's nothing, so a three-day fast, I've done a a couple three-day fasts. The worst part of a three-day fast is the second night trying to go to sleep. It's the worst. Because your body has processed everything that it stored. Obviously for me, I could fast for more than three days and we still wouldn't be to the point where we processed everything we stored. But all the easy energy's gone, and so your metabolism is like, what are we going to do? You know what? Let's stay awake and think. Let's just lay awake. I, if you question this, I challenge anybody that questions that, and even if you don't, take it, do a three-day fast. And that second night, the first night you lay down, and it's like, oh, I'm so hungry. I could eat a donut or a steak or a pizza. That's what I think. I mean, you don't have to think those things. But then it's like, then you fall asleep. The second night, you lay there, and you're not even that hungry. The second night, you're just wide awake. Work hard all day long, and you're laying there, and your brain's just like, I have nothing else to do. We have no food to process, so we're just going to stay up and think. Can anybody attest to that? Anybody else experience that? You get to that second night, and it's like, we could just, why don't we stay up all night? There is a value, there is a focus that comes when you tell your body no, You're able to see things clearer. You become sharper, mentally sharper. You know why? Because like I said, your body's 
spending all of its oxygen, all of its blood, it's all going to your brain. It's not busy processing food. We don't have to like run your bowels and pump your stomach and do all this. It's like, we'll just pump it all to your brain. There's a focus that comes when you step away from carnal desire and fast. Now, I, I believe that Esther was probably praying, but we don't see it in the text. She saw, though, there was a unique ability of fasting to focus, to see clearly. So Esther goes to the king. Verse one of chapter five, it happened on the third day. Esther put on her royal robes and she stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, verse two, that she found favor in his sight. Now, that word favor it's, that word favor is contained in the word that we have for grace today. Grace is unmerited, unearned favor, blessing. Like I said, we're looking for little types, big types, little shadows, big shadows. She stood before the king and found favor in his sight. The king held out to Esther a golden scepter that was in his hand. And Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? And it shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. Remember, Esther had spent three days fasting, possibly praying, but at least fasting. She knew exactly what to do next. She was not, this wasn't a whim. Have you ever found yourself in a difficult conversation and you're there kind of on a whim? I I have Maybe I'm the only one. I found myself there where I'm in the middle of a difficult conversation and I realize I really don't have much preparation. And then I've also been in difficult situations, difficult conversations where I've spent time in prayer, even some that I've fasted and a few that I've prayed with people for and there's a calm that's present. Same difficult conversation. It's not less difficult, but I've got calm because I've prepared for this conversation. Spent time focusing, and I know this is what I'm going to say, that I'm going to say this, this is the steps forward that I'm going to take. She was prepared. She spent three days fasting. Others had been fasting on her behalf. Verse four, so Esther answered, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Verse five, the king said, bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. It was, she'd made preparation. Now, this is a side note, but I just, I want to, I want to point out the fortitude that Esther possessed. What did we just talk about for the last few minutes? She was fasting, and yet there is a banquet prepared. Lord Jesus, the fortitude this woman has she, now, I don't know what level of preparation she had. Like, I don't, she, I'm sure, had people working for her, but there was still some thoughts. Like, we should have turkey, and we should have mashed potatoes, and we should have roast. Like, she's doing this day two, day three, day one, she's, which one is really hard to talk about food. First day of a three-day fast, it's like, don't talk about food. When people go to eat, you just leave. It's like, I can't be around you if you're eating on day one. She was taking time. Again, this is a side note, but there was tremendous fortitude in this woman's life to be able to say, we need a banquet, and I'm going to keep fasting. Wow, that's amazing. So she prepared a banquet. There was a banquet there. So they come today to the banquet, and the king said, bring Haman. So they went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Verse 6, at the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? It should be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom and it shall be done. Verse seven, Esther answered and said, my petition and request is this. Remember, three days of planning, three days of focus. She knew exactly what she was gonna do next. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Slow down. What's that old sharpshooter saying? Slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Slow down. She says, just come here. We'll have a little banquet. And then my request is, would you by any chance come tomorrow? 
for another? <sighs> Absolutely. Who's going to say no to that? What? By all means, this is a fabulous banquet. We'll be back tomorrow. Verse 9. <clears throat> we were going to go, I had real big hopes for today. And it's good, and I'm glad we're here. We're not going to, my hopes will not be fulfilled. But it's okay. Verse 9, so Haman went out. Remember, Haman's the henchman. Remember, do, do we all remember Haman in the story? We just did the little review. But Haman was the henchman. He doesn't like Mordecai. He's the guy who authored the law that started this whole thing. He's like, we're going to wipe out the Jewish people through the whole kingdom, possibly exterminate the entire line of Abraham. This is this guy. And she's like, come to a banquet. Oh, why don't you come back tomorrow for another banquet? So Haman went out that day. What was he? In verse 9 of chapter 5, we see he was joyful and a glad heart, which means he, was, he had this like inner peace, but he was also happy. It was like everything's working out. But when he saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. There he is again. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Verse 11, And Haman told them of the great riches and the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he advanced him above all the officials and servants of the king. Now, does this guy strike anyone? The, word, the only word I get when I read this is humility. <laughs> That's very ironic. It's not, I didn't mean that for real. He's everything but hum, humble. He has no humility in his life. Verse 12, moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Verse 13, yet, alas, all this avails me nothing. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew, my Achilles heel, sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, you know what we should do? Let's build a gallows. What do you do with the gallows? Let's make it 50 cubits high. And in the morning, why don't you suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it? And then go merrily to the king with the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. This chunk of scripture is rich. This guy, he leaves and he is feeling full of himself. I am a big deal. I have been asked by the queen to come to one banquet, which was a stunning success. And I've been asked to come back tomorrow. He has no idea what Esther's actual request is. It does not work out well for him. But at this point, he's high on the hog. And he's walking along feeling great about being him. And he encounters Mordecai, who isn't antagonizing him. He's just also not worshiping him. It's not, like he wasn't throwing pebbles at him or anything. He was just like, I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to worship you, you pompous, whatever he thought and said. And that just got under his skin. See, pride, pride sets us up for a fall. And pride set Haman up. I mean, Haman set himself up. But pride in this moment, it, it accelerated pretty quick from this point. He was so consumed with himself. He says to himself, this is a, a little side note here. He says, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, went home, and what does he do in verse 10? It says he called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. He's like, I need somebody to make me feel better. Contrast this with King David. When King David was down in the dumps, at the end of himself, his army, he was an outcast in his own country. His army had just been pillaged and people carried off. And what did he do? Anybody remember what he did to encourage himself? Worship the Lord. He said, I got I to gotta take a minute and worship the Lord. I'm going to encourage myself by worshiping the Lord. Is that different? That's like, I mean, you couldn't get more. This guy's like, bring everybody that's going to tell me how awesome I am. I just want to listen to him tell me how awesome I am. And then, you know what? I don't have time to listen to them. I'll tell them how awesome I am. So he says, moreover, uh, verse 11, Haman told them of his great riches. I know a couple of people like this, and I'm not going to say anything. It's a blessing, isn't it, when you encounter somebody and they're it's like, hey, come, come over here. You know how rich I am. <laughs> Tells them of his great riches, the multitude. It was like everything in my life is going awesome. And I want everybody to know it. 
only yes men, please, to this meeting, but everything is going awesome. Look at my kids. They're awesome. I've been promoted by the king. I'm awesome. I advanced above all the other officials. Everybody else that works for this guy, I'm the best. I'm the boss. Furthermore, the queen even likes me. She invited me to come. Mordecai. Mordecai. Everything is going perfect in my life except that man. And his wife and all of his friends. You know what we should do? We should deal with that one guy. The one, the pebble in your shoe. We should hang him. Now, we're looking... We're looking to see Jesus. And he's all over in this. Esther goes to the king. We back up to verse, the beginning of chapter 5. Esther goes to the king on behalf of her people and is accepted. Jesus went to heaven on behalf of us and was accepted. In verses 9 through 14, we just read, Haman sees Mordecai and it just devours him. This one man's failure to bow before him reveals his, like I said in it when I read it, his Achilles heel, his tremendous insecurity. Now Haman sets in motion events that will mirror the cross in a unique way. Now the cross is all through Scripture. Almost every story, you'll see a picture somewhere, an image somewhere, a type or a shadow somewhere of the cross. He orders the gallows to be built. In those days when they build a gallows, they build them out of wood. In the days when Jesus was crucified, they built a cross out of wood. There is a type and a shadow being set in motion. He orders the gallows to be built. He intends this gallows to be the capstone, the crowning achievement of the destruction of the Jewish people. He was unaware that it would soon be used for his own destruction. The cross of Calvary was intended for the destruction of the king of glory, but it wound up being the instrument that facilitated the utter defeat of Satan. The introduction to worship this morning that Jody brought talked about what Jesus did when he traveled to hell. Satan would have never crucified the king of glory if he would have known what he was doing. Haman would have never ordered the gallows to be built had he known he was about to be hung on it. The cross of Jesus wound up being the instrument that allowed Jesus to legally travel to hell to gain the keys of death, hell, and the grave. Both the gallows for Haman and the cross for Satan came from a place of tremendous insecurity and self-centeredness. Do you see these shadows? We can't deny them. It's all over. If you fast forward, and we have to fast forward because I'm very slow at going through this with us. If you go to chapter one or chapter six, verse one, you see that night, Haman built, we're going to fly through this last little bit, but I think you'll get what I'm getting at. The night after the gallows was built, so they have the first feast. Esther wisely says, come back tomorrow. So they left, they're going to come back tomorrow. That night, Haman builds a gallows, which is a typology, it's a picture of the cross to come. He builds it for his arch enemy, his nemesis, his Achilles heel, Mordecai. He's going to hang him on it, he thinks. He's going to achieve victory through this. But that night, the king couldn't sleep. So one, command, so one was commanded to bring the, the book of the records or the book of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai, the guy we just built the gallows for, unbeknownst to the king, it was found that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Remember this? We left this sitting It was just like, what's going to happen next? It was written in the book of the Chronicles, and we moved on. It was a little detail. 
There was a plot against the king's life, and Mordecai helped to thwart it. This account was read that night. Then the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? He says, what's, like, what did we do for this guy? The servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Verse 4, so the king said, who is in the court now? So Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest, what? That they hang Mordecai on the gallows he'd prepared for him. Talk about winning a gold medal at the Bad Timing Awards. This guy knocked it out of the park. He's like, I'm going to go tell him right now, we're going to hang this guy. And he just happened to say, what did we do for this guy who saved my life? This is not the time to hang him. I can tell you that. I can tell you that, and we'll see it pan out. Uh, the king's servant said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. And I love this. I have said from the day one that we started looking at Esther, if you were to make a real live film accurately of this story, it would be one of the best movies of all time. Haman comes in, the king asks him, what shall be done for the man in whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom the king, who would the king delight in more than me? Remember, we just read, he's a big deal and he knows it. I'm awesome. In fact, I just spent all afternoon telling my wife and my buddies how awesome I am. Of course the king's going to want to honor me. That must be who he's talking about. So what does Haman do? He answers the king. You can just see on his face this smug, like, I'm it. I can tell you what you should do for the man in whom the king delights. Verse 8, let a royal robe be brought. And he's thinking, I would like it to be. He knows what color he wants and everything. Let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, a horse which the king has ridden, which the royal crest placed on his head. Verse 9, let this robe and the horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. This, I love this. Does everybody follow? It's like, who? Oh my, what would I like? I would like... I want a horse that you've ridden, but I want a robe that you've worn, and I want the royal crest. And then I would like someone lesser than me, but a royal prince, someone lesser than me, obviously, because I'll be on the horse. I'd like them to lead me on the horse through the city, telling everybody, this is the king's favorite person. I think that would do. Yes, that's what I would do. So the king says to Haman in verse 10, hurry, take the robe, get the horse, just as you've suggested, and go do it for Mordecai. But we, we was going to hang him. We said, I, I built the gallows. Do you not want, we shouldn't hang him then? Get the horse, get the robe, and then get this. So Haman took the robe, verse 11, took the horse, arrayed Mordecai. I mean, imagine this dude. He was the color of a stop sign. Through the city square, and, pro and he had to lead him through the city square. Remember, he wanted somebody less than. I would like someone less than me. Not me. I want somebody less than me. Okay, how about you do it then? You do it for Mordecai. It shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Verse 12, afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. I mean, it doesn't get better than this. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that had happened to him, this is the only credit I can give Haman in this whole story. I expected, if you were watching this film, you would expect that he would lie about it. <laughs> like, that's the character we're dealing with. But he's just, he tells him everything that had happened to him, and his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai... If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, then you will not prevail against him, but surely will fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to what? The banquet that Esther had prepared. The plot continues. Now, we gotta finish. Does everybody have a few minutes? I know there's food, but just a few minutes so we can wrap this. Like, I gotta, we gotta finish. Just, everybody hang on. I know you're on the edge of your seat. Just scoop back just a few inches. 
We'll finish this. So the king and Haman went to dine with, the, with Queen Esther. On the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, what is your petition? He's happy. He's feeling good. He honored the guy that uh, he had forgotten to honor. He'd honored him well. He had no idea about the gallows situation. And he's, but he's feeling good. Esther, like he knows Esther wants something, wants to ask him something, but we're at day two, and he's like, I'm feeling pretty good. Um, what, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, if I have found favor, which is, she's speaking, and she maintains a position of humility through this whole story, which is, again, it is a, it's a foreshadowing of the humility that Christ walked in. She maintains humility this whole time. Esther, Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. In other words, I don't want to be killed. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed and to be killed and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to the Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would dare to presume in his heart to do such a thing? The king is upset, visibly and verbally upset. Where is he and who would dare to think this or do it? Oh, heavens. Remember Haman? You thought he was red before? He's sitting there, he's like, if I could just disappear for just a second, now would be the opportune moment. Hold that wish. Just a moment. Esther said, this adversary and the enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Verse 7, the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther. What was he doing? Pleading for his life. For he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. You don't say. So Recap, the king loves Esther. She's pretty awesome. He selected her out of the most beautiful women in the largest nation in the entire world that the world has ever seen. She's the prettiest, she's the best. He loves her. Haman devises this plan to exterminate her entire race of people from the planet. She finds out about it. She schmoozes the king and he's right there. He understands what's about to happen. She tells him, she tells the king, this is the guy, this is the guy. He came up with it, he made the law. You signed it, but he made the law. So he's pleading for his life, of course. It's a, and it's a pointless plea, but he's pleading for his life. Verse eight, when the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine. Remember, this guy just got the gold medal at the Bad Timing Awards. And he's about to get... The overall prize, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will you also assault the queen while I am in this house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now, you may not know what covering, the significance of that is like, you're done. You're so done. If we were to set a stopwatch, it would not reach very many minutes before you are physically, permanently done. As the words left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, <laughs> ah, a gallows! It's 50 cubits high. You know what? Haman actually made that for Mordecai. Remember the, dude, the guy we just honored? The guy who saved your life. This guy was going to hang that guy on that gallows. The king said, hang him on it. I like that. Uh, I like the, in the end of verse nine, we see the king said, he didn't like, I, I like that he didn't mince his words. It wasn't like, well, what pray tell shall we do with him? He's like, hang him on it. There's the gallows. Here's the guy. Hang him on it. Remember, the gallows for Haman, the cross for Satan, both came from a place of tremendous insecurity and self-centeredness. Haman thought a lot more of himself than he should have. He was so confident that he would be given the opportunity to hang his nemesis. So much so that before he acquired permission to do so, he built a gallows. 
Satan was so confident that if he could just kill Jesus Christ, if he could just kill Jesus' body, he would achieve victory. He would be what he always wanted to be, all the way back in Genesis, like the Most High God. But that gallows and that cross worked against them. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 in the New American Standard reads, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't mean that God causes all things to happen. It's a big miscommunication in Christianity today that a lot of people want everything, God to do everything. Well, he's, he's doing everything. And we don't see that in Scripture. We see that he's working all things. There's a huge difference. We make choices, and he works through them. There were choices that were made in this book of Esther, in the story of Esther. But God works all things together. He causes them to work. He'll work in them. There's, there's few, few stories in Scripture that reveal that more clearly than the story of Esther. As we sang the last song this morning, it's when death was arrested. The, the, the plot, I remember when I first heard that song, I was pretty jacked up about it. I was excited because it's one of the first songs I ever heard that really helped us to see that the victory for life was born in the grave of defeat. And it was in that moment that darkness thought it had won. Evil thought it had won. Don't think for a minute that when Haman gave the okay to build the gallows, he thought he'd won. There's no way the king is going to say no. There's no way. I already signed the law, and we're going to keep going in the story of Esther in the future. I don't know if it'll be next week or when exactly. We're going to, keep, we're going to get all the way through the story because there's more in it. There's more pictures of Jesus. There's more things in it. But as, as Jesus breathed his last breath, There was a celebration in hell. It began. We killed him. We killed him. And then he showed up. And the Bible talks about Jesus made a show of Satan openly. Now, we've talked about that before, but I just want to touch on that. Just as Haman, you know, when... when they hung Haman from the gallows that he built for Mordecai. How many of you know that Haman was never going to do another thing to another Jewish person ever? They hung him. He's done. You couldn't make him more done. The parade, the show openly that was made of Satan, that there, was a, there was a thing that they did culturally at the time when the Romans would overthrow. At the time of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the Romans were conquering it was no longer the Medo-Persian Empire. It was the Roman Empire. And they would conquer a city-state. And they would take the king and they would cut off his thumbs. They'd cut off his big toes. They'd strip him naked. And they'd bind his hands. And they would lead him in a parade through town. Through the city-state region, wherever he was the king over. And you say, well, what, what was the deal with the thumbs? Well, without thumbs, it's really difficult to wield a spear or a sword or a bow. You'll never fight again. Take off your thumbs, you're never going to grasp a sword and do battle. You're never going to overthrow the regime that just took you over. You will never overthrow it without your thumbs. You cut off your toes, your big toes, you're never going to be able to balance to fight in an arena. Most of our balance comes from our big toes. You cut off the big toes and the thumbs and it's like, you are no longer a threat. You are no longer viewed as an instrument of deadly force or a threat to overthrow our ruler, our leadership. Strip them naked, you've got no more dignity. There's no more dignity left. You've got bloody stumps on your thumbs, bloody stumps on your toes. You can't hardly walk, and you're naked being drugged through town. Now, that's a, it's a visceral picture, but I want you to think about that with regards to Jesus and the enemy. That's the, that is the picture that was painted for us, that a show was made of Satan openly, so that all the powers of darkness are aware you're defeated and he's never coming back to win. Just as Haman was through, he was over, he was done. 
That typology, the title of the message this morning I, is looking for Jesus. We're looking for Jesus in this. We see him all through it, and there's more we're going to find of him. There's pictures. Esther was willing to die for her whole people. She went to the king on behalf of her people. After three days, you see all these, you stack up all these images, and it's like, yeah, of course, the gospel's all over in this. Back to the road to Emmaus, and this will be the last point. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus is walking. Luke chapter 24, if you want to make a note, you want to read the story. In Luke chapter 24, you see Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus with two of his followers. We don't know who they were, but he's walking with two of his followers, and he, and he teaches them about the Messiah. And the, the, the point that we often miss when we read that is we're like, I'm sure he probably read him some of John, and he probably read him some from Mark, and he probably read him some of Matt. Like, he probably told him about, none of those books were written yet. There was no New Testament. There was no book of Galatians. He couldn't refer to Ephesians and he couldn't show them in Hebrews. None of that was there yet. So how did, it, what scriptures did he use to teach them? The Old Testament. Possibly the book of Esther. Possibly the story of Joseph. We don't know exactly what scripture he used, but I assure you, it was all before Matthew. Jesus is all over in this Old Testament. I want to read, I, I just, I want to look at that exact verse. I didn't mark it out here in my Bible, but I want to read it. In Mark chapter 20, Luke, sorry, Luke 24. I want to read it because I want you to see. I don't want anybody leaving here saying, well, he just said that he taught them from Scripture. No, he did, and I want to read it here. I'll get to it. Let's see. Give me a moment. Behold, two of them tra were traveling the same day to the village called Emmaus, which is seven miles from Jerusalem. This is verse 13 of chapter 24 in the book of Luke. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with, him, with them. But their eyes were restrained. They didn't know it was him. He said to them, what conversation is it that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? He knew they were sad. Then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which happened in, there in these days? <laughs> Jesus said to them, What things? <laughs> so they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in the word before God and all the people, how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified. They crucified him, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, Today is the third day since these things happened. It's over. It's death one. Like, we thought he was the guy. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb were early, were, they astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying also they'd seen a vision of angels, said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. So Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? In the beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the, the things concerning himself. We're not introduced to the gospel in Matthew. We're introduced to the gospel in Genesis. In Exodus, all the way through Psalms, Micah, all through the Old Testament we see glimpses, we see types, we see chapters, we see precedents set for the new covenant to be enacted. I just want to encourage you guys as you study the Word of God, whether it's the book of Esther or wherever you're reading, I, I want to encourage you to look for Jesus. Look for the gospel. Look for the gospel story, the new covenant story. You will find it. And if you read scripture and you're like, I just don't see it in there, ask the Lord. He'll reveal it to you. You know the Holy Spirit that dwells on the inside of you today is the same Holy Spirit that penned all the scriptures that we have. He wrote it. He'll show you what he meant. There's so much 
so much of, of humanity, we tend to read the Bible and we're like, I don't know how this applies to me. How could I be a better me? Or you could be a better you. And I think this and I feel that. It doesn't matter what you feel. Let the Holy Spirit reveal to you what is true. Look for Jesus, the author and the finisher. And I love, we talk about this, the author and the illustrator. You know, you read the kids' books and it's like authored and illustrated by. Jesus wrote it and then he became it for us. I just want to encourage you to look for Jesus. As we step into this week, I'm wrapping up. We're going to go. You can stand with me. I'm going to pray. I'm going to make a declaration and we'll pray. I'll pray for the food and everything. As we step into this week, I just, I declare that we are blessed, highly favored. We are chosen by God to represent God. I, just, I declare that we will step from this place with boldness of lions, the courage to speak truth, to declare the gospel to all that we come in contact with. We know that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Bow with me if you would. Father, I thank you so much for this food. Pray a blessing over it, Lord. Most of all, I thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you for showing us the gospel all through scripture, for recording all these details, your faithfulness, showing us your character, revealing your character in your people. Father, right now I pray for this body of believers. Just pray a blessing over them as we step into this week. Lord, I just lift up the country of Israel, your chosen people. Father, I just pray protection over them, provision for them. I think about the Words that Mordecai spoke. If Esther fails, protection and provision will arise from another place. Father, I just pray that that protection would arise from whatever place is able to bring it. Pray protection over them. We declare that we stand with them. We stand with the nation of Israel against all the forces of evil and darkness that have come against it, many of which are coming against us in this country as well. But Father, I just thank you so much for the freedom that we currently have right now, that we're walking in, that we are not in peril of life or possessions, that we're able to gather together to worship you, to declare that greater are you who is in us than he who is in the world. We can step from this place with boldness, that we can proclaim our faith. Father, I just pray that boldness would well up on the inside of each man, woman, and child in this place, that in the sound of my voice, that boldness would well up, that we would proclaim truth, we would stand for life, that we would take cues, even from the story where we, we're looking for Jesus. We see you, Lord, and the other layers of application, we see encouragement to stand forth, to not value our, not fall too in love with our lives in this place, we would just proclaim the gospel. Lord, I pray a blessing over this body the rest of our day and the rest of our week. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. And all God's people said amen. You guys have a wonderful week. Enjoy the food.